Less than 50% of foster kids earn a high school diploma by 18 years old, and less than 1% earn a graduate degree or higher. Welcome to Just a Special, a place to learn more about foster care, especially from diverse perspectives. I'm Natasha, a foster parent to a teen girl. And I'm Rachel, a volunteer mentor for foster kids. But Natasha, it's so exciting because we actually get to record together. Yes, that usually doesn't happen. And thank you so much for hosting me here at your home in Arizona and allowing us to turn your closet into a recording studio. I know, absolutely. I've definitely enjoyed being your tour guide. But we have a really exciting episode for you guys today. Natasha, would you like to introduce it for us? Sure. So today's episode is all about how to avoid the savior complex, which really gets to the heart of how to healthily welcome a foster kid into your life. Yeah. And, you know, a little shameless plug here, but we did kind of go into what the Savior Complex is back in our trailer. So if you haven't listened to it already, please do so. It's a really good opportunity to get to know what our podcast is going to be about as well. But also, too, is we had the opportunity to also meet Maddie in that trailer. But for those that haven't listened to it, could you introduce her to us? Sure. So behind a lot of today's episode is Maddie Baker. Maddie Baker is a former foster kid turned social worker who lives in Colorado. She went into foster care at the age of 11 and spent time in 28 different foster homes and group homes as she was growing up. And she really got personal and raw with me about how the Savior Complex personally impacted her. And a big part of that was just the chaos that she was thrown into every time she was going into a new home, which led to her feeling just so misunderstood And these feelings of chaos and misunderstanding started well before she even went into the foster care system. Yeah, I remember being in elementary school and being pulled into the principal's office for like hygiene issues. Nobody was talking to my mom. Like it was very interesting to me, even at that age of like 10 years old. Why isn't anybody questioning my mom about this stuff? And maybe, you know, behind the scenes they were. I didn't see that. I felt very blamed for a lot of stuff that was completely out of my control as a kid. And yet I was like being made to take care of myself. I think this is a good transition to that microwave story, which is also a moment that you felt extremely misunderstood and that kind of followed you as well. There was stuff like even before the microwave story that sort of gave me the stigma of like, (laughs) I was this horrible child, but it was stuff like cussing people out and slamming doors. And I just kind of had a big presence about me, I think, that was intimidating to a lot of people and foster parents included. And so um, prior to coming into this home, I was probably 13 years old, sassy as hell, very like sure of myself, but 13, so not. (laughs) And yeah, I had just come into this home. They had their own biological children living there and they were very protective of them. And I think the oldest, there's like an eight and a nine-year-old. The minute I came in, they had a list of rules that like, we know you're not really going to follow these rules, but you better. And it was just sort of this attitude that was framed as like, They had read my file, whatever that meant, (laughs) and they knew about me. And so I was already sort of on edge. And I think that that's something that like anxiety is often mistaken for anger or for bad behavior. Coming into somebody's home is like the most anxiety inducing thing I think that I had experienced until that point. 
And so I was on edge too, you know, not really knowing what these people expected of me, except this like list of ways that I was supposed to behave without them understanding I'm coming from complete chaos, you know? So I'm on edge the first couple of days. There's a lot of fighting, a lot of door slamming, cursing on my end. And then one day, yeah, I came home from school. I put a hot pocket in the microwave with a fork on the plate unintentionally (laughs) because, I mean, you're 13 and kind of thoughtless. And yeah, I ended up blowing up their microwave and it was this huge ordeal. Like again, anxiety ridden me. I was, you know, freaked out that I had done this and also very aware that like, this is it for me in this home. And again, I had just been there for a few days. And so having to like deal with their feelings, their emotions the emotions and chaos that I'm feeling inside that's sort of like amplified by it's just such a like wreck of emotions, right? And it's a microwave. It's like behavior can be misinterpreted, regardless of like what a person's past is, or like I had never blown up a microwave in the past. That wasn't my reputation, but oh now things are escalating, things are getting worse. And it was just such an unintentional thing that ended up following me honestly throughout like <laughs> it haunted me my whole like time in foster care until I left that agency it was sort of this like big to do about how is my behavior escalating am I getting worse when really it was just like anxiety is getting worse and this like misinterpretation of my behavior was just so painful and so I acted out in a very like aggressive way when really it was just such an incredibly painful misunderstanding that shaped a lot of my existence. You know, it was a microwave and yet it was not just a microwave. Oh, Maddie, that sounds like a really difficult experience because like you're saying, it is just a microwave and microwaves too are the least expensive kitchen appliance to that end. It's like, just get a new microwave. I can totally see what you're saying that if we don't set the precedent of we're here for you, we're on your team, like that other family did, they made you on the defensive from the beginning. And that situation was set up from the start to not be a super successful placement. So Maddie, having been on both sides of this, both as a foster kid growing up in the system and now as a social worker, what are some of those things you think are important and integral to making a home a successful place for a foster kid? So I think one of the biggest things is like when I would like go into somebody's home, there would be a list of established rules. You have to do X, Y, and Z, and we will do X, Y, and Z for you. I totally understand the need to have rules established and to have boundaries set. That's absolutely something that kids of any age need. But to be able to like create those rules and those boundaries with each kid, I think is a huge way that you can give power and control back. There's just not a lot of choice in foster care. There's not a lot of what do you need? What's going to work for you? There's not a lot of that conversation. Um, At least that was my experience. And so I think if kids can be brought in to what it needs to look like for them to be successful, instead of being told, this is how you're going to be successful here. I can see that being a huge stressful labor for a kid, just knowing that they have a say in what happens in their daily life. And just for listeners here, what you're talking about, Maddie, when you mentioned bringing kids into these everyday decisions is the opposite of the savior complex, right? Which is basically foster parents not bringing a kid into the decision-making process because they think they know what's best. Yeah. And just being empathetic to the fact that there is a whole history coming with this person. It's not like you're getting 
a kid in there that's not going to have any kind of issues, you know? So like sort of anticipating that things are going to happen, beefing yourself up as a foster parent with your own supports is super important to giving kids space to behave as kids and to do the things they need to do to be successful. Like kids in the best homes, the best of settings, biological parents, they're still going to struggle in some ways because, you know, we're brand new people. We're just learning how to function. And so I think giving kids space to not behave well. But again, it goes back to like, what is the reason for fostering kids? Like, why do you as a foster parent want to open your home? You know, is it more about needing to help kids? And if that's the case, then let's get the kids involved because they really know a lot more about what they need in terms of like breathing room (laughs) in a new, scary, traumatic kind of setting. Yeah, I think that's a really great point because the teen that got placed with me too, like she's so articulate in what her needs are. And sometimes they're so different than what I thought that they would be. Like she actually has the need to clean. (laughs) She wants to clean. She really does. And it's so stress relieving for her. And like, who would have thought? That's like an amazing thing for her and an amazing outlet. And I'm like, sure, you want to clean, clean. (laughs) I love what you're saying too about like, you have to go to the need And really ask yourself, why is it that you're doing this? Like, can you talk a little more about that? Because I think that's so integral. And it shifts throughout time, right? Like, I think that most people get into foster care with great intentions, with totally helping kids as the focus. But again, like, we all have perceptions of what it looks like for somebody to be in our home, regardless of if it's somebody living here or visiting, like, we just have rules around that and to think about being more lenient with those in a lot of ways that's uncomfortable. It's a lot to think about, but that's what's also at the heart of like loving people where they're at, right? Is doing that kind of thing, like meeting somebody where they're at, giving them space to be who they are. I had foster parents that we just did not click just on a personal level as people, (laughs) but that didn't mean that we couldn't have had some kind of relationship and connection. Again, like had a single person been like, I'm going to stick it out with you. I honestly don't think that there's a single person I lived with. And I have opinions about each person, honestly, (laughs) like, but there's no one that I wouldn't have been like open to having a relationship with. But I think that once you start seeing someone as their behavior, it's really hard to look back (laughs) and it's hard to repair that relationship. Maddie, I really love what you're saying here because I think it's so important. You're talking about holding space for foster kids to be involved in the process of really creating your family together, but also remembering that they're kids at all point in time, right? Like holding space for them to mess up and make mistakes. And I think that really gets at the balance of what it is to be a foster parent and a volunteer, which is basically constantly checking yourself to see, am I meeting the needs of the kids Or am I meeting the rules or expectations of how I thought things would be and not allowing any flexibility to meet kids where they're at in that moment? That reminds me of a quote that I love by Karen Purvis, which is, you cannot bring a child to a place of healing if you don't know the way yourself. Right. And I think that goes, you know, asking what traits I found helpful in foster parents. I would say that that is it, just the ability to self-reflect and do your own work and do your own healing and constantly be aware that there's things, you know, in all of us, we all have things that we need to continually be working on, checking, 
making sure that we're dealing with being non-judgmental, all that stuff comes from that place of being willing to always work on yourself in hopes that like that passes on to somebody else. You know, like if I had seen some of my foster parents doing their own work, I think I would have felt a little bit less like I was in charge of my own like destiny in that home. A default for a lot of foster parents, I think, is this kid's going to come into my home. They need to know I'm in charge. But with foster kids, like we've been talking about, it's really important that they have some power. And I think too, with our foster kid, like we tell her, I go to therapy. I'm open with her about that. We're new at this, which was a little vulnerable for me to say, because <laughs> I didn't want her to think we had no idea what we we're doing. But I was like, you know what? We're new at this. So if you feel like something was inappropriate or wrong, or you'd prefer something a different way, we're always open to feedback. And most things I think we could be able to change, you know, as long as we feel like it's not harmful for us. And I think that was really huge for her. And it really helped the walls come down because she knew it wasn't her against us. It made it more like we're in this together. And even to admit when you make mistakes, sometimes I'll be like, you know what? There probably was a better way I could have handled that situation. I'm going to really think about that. So I know in the future. And I think that also gets back to that family dynamic of like these kids and everyone, every person, right? Even the foster parents, they want to feel like they're part of a team and the team's working together. And I think that's a much bigger place of power for the whole family and can really reduce some of those power struggles. You're talking about bringing this girl into your home and you're telling her like what you need, you're open to feedback, like immediate, like just those words, like I feel my defenses drop, you know, with like, hey, there's structure in place here. It's a safe place and we're flexible in that structure and we're willing to adapt to what you need. So please give us feedback. It's bringing them in to the fold and listening where there's already a structure established, but we're going to meet your needs within that structure. Like, how can you not immediately feel a little less defensive to that? And I'm not saying at all that like, you know, she didn't probably embrace you and say, thank you so much for the, you know, but like that kind of stuff sticks with you. And I guarantee like, had she not, you know, had a positive response to it in the future, that would have like, it sticks with you, you know? And I think also too, offering up the language of like emotions, that's again, not something that we're born knowing how to do. And a lot of times, again, I think anxiety comes out as anger and it's just trying to express these deep emotions that we don't have, maybe we have words for, but to like express them in the moment, how are we supposed to know how to do that unless somebody models that for us and doing your own work, you know, being like, Hey, we had a fight. How did that feel for you after the fact? Like that is huge and something we should all be doing in any of our relationships. And especially in a relationship where the power dynamic is an issue that offers somebody so much power to be like, this is what that experience was like for me, knowing how to use that language, being able to practice using that language in a place where you're really feeling heard. Like I, that's just the best thing that could ever happen in foster care. I feel like it's just that you're in pain. I see you. How are you dealing with that? What is so important, like you're saying, is creating space for feelings to be shared. And I think a lot of times foster kids haven't had that space ever, right? It's been about the parent when they were with their biological parent. A lot of the times it's about the biological parent and their needs. And the kids are almost put in a position where they're parenting their parents. Or when they come into foster care, a lot of times they're wondering, you know, what are the foster parents' needs? Because I know I need some sort of stability. So how can I kind of make this work? 
or I know this isn't going to work out most likely. So how can I disrupt the stability so that I just move on? Like I know I'm going to anyway, I might as well have some control over it. And I think part of that fear sometimes comes from, right, maybe they have shared feelings in the past and they've been either completely ignored or there's been a really big reaction in part of the parental figure in their life at the time that was negative. So then they feel like their emotions aren't safe. So a lot of times they're trying to really regulate their emotions by stuffing them down and not giving them room to breathe and, you know, modeling that for them. If I get triggered by something, I am open about it because also I think if you're not, then the kid can interpret that as something that they've done. Maybe it's an anniversary of a family member's death and you're just having a really hard day. And that happened recently with our kid. And if I hadn't told her that that's what was going on that day, she would have interpreted that to be something that you know she had done. How often do we as people in general just not share what's going on because, you know, in a lot of times it's not appropriate, but like that's absolutely an appropriate time to share something going on in your own life. You know, it allows her to be empathetic with you. It's just this beautiful reciprocal relationship. And that's what it looks like when attachment is working, you know, like you can share with her, you feel safe enough with her. That's a huge responsibility that we all need to feel is that somebody feels safe with us. And if we're not allowed that experience when we're younger, when we're, you know, maybe not the safest of people, how do we learn how to navigate that? I think a lot of times there's this fear of like, you know, we are going to parentify this kid if we share this counter-transference is a huge, huge thing. And it's like, how much do I share my personal experience? The line is drawn when it becomes about you and meeting your needs. If I'm sharing my story with someone because I just have to get it out. Obviously, it's unhealthy, but if it's like something that's going to help somebody where they're at, you know, it's totally appropriate. And so I just think that we have to use self disclosure with foster kids too. Like, there's no difference at all between foster kids and kids. Like, they're still just kids, you know, and there's no other place they're going to learn how to function in life than through their parental figures or through their caregivers. And it's our responsibility to model that vulnerability you know, like a boundary vulnerability, but there's no other place to learn it. On one end, it's so clear, you can't do foster care to fulfill a need and be successful at it and be healthy with it. On the other end, you also can't just think of yourself as the savior, you know, saving these kids, even though you have the potential to play a super big role. It is their choice and any progress they make is theirs. But then it can be super rewarding. So how do you kind of hold all of this together in a healthy way? That's a really good question. Holding that piece of self-reflection and understanding like there's always your own growth that you're going to have to be doing. There's a lot of reward in that, right? And that's also a fine line to walk because you don't want to make like this experience all about you or about your healing growth. But I think if like you find your reward in the challenge, in the struggle, and that demands that you view it as like a long-term relationship, I think then I think that's where the most reward comes in. It's the long term. It's like the messy, hurtful parts of our relationship that change how we function and love each other. You know, like it's those messy parts that you've really got to dedicate your time and energy to someone and commit to sticking it out. Included in that goes along with working on yourself.
does a really good job of expressing to us that whether you're a volunteer or a foster parent, oftentimes the relationship that you have with your foster kid is definitely a shade of gray and it's not black and white. So Natasha, can you kind of explain to us too, is like, how is your relationship with Moon, your foster kid? Yes. So my foster daughter is a teen and you're right. Our relationship doesn't really fall into a quote unquote normal societal relationship. You know, I'm not her quote unquote like mom, though I am a parental influence in her life. How I explain it to people is that foster parenting is sort of like co-parenting with all your exes because there is a team of people that are around each foster kid and that team makes decisions for the kid. So as the foster parent, I'm not the one making decisions for Moon's future or even big decisions that impact her day-to-day life. So how many people is this team set up to make one decision for a foster kid? So it really depends on a number of factors, but oftentimes there is always a social worker. Sometimes there's a home coordinator. Sometimes there's a child's therapist, a guardian at litem, which is basically a child's attorney and represents their best interests in court. And there can be other people as well. But you have this whole team of people that are making decisions for a kid. As a foster parent, I'm asked for input since I'm the one spending time day to day with the foster kid, but I'm not the one making final big decisions at all. That's a pretty big team behind one foster kid. I can definitely see then why you're saying exes because it's a lot of people that might not have the same opinion. Yeah, that's right. Sometimes people will have conflicting opinions and then there's a hierarchy, of course, as well. Um, A lot of times that guardian at litem is going to have the final say for a kid. So it's just a really interesting dynamic, but it can also be very positive if everyone is really on board with the child's best interest because you're getting different expertise and different advice onto what would be best for that child. And I think Maddie also does a really great job of showing how when we try to define things or make those relationships into something that they're not organically, it's a little bit dangerous So I think a really great way to avoid that savior complex of thinking, you know, you can save a kid or you know best or, you know, any success is your success really is to make room for your relationship with your foster kid to just grow in a way that's organic for both of you. And, you know, that really reminds me of how Maddie met her mom. That's right. So Maddie met her mom around the age of 14. And at the time, Maddie's adoptive mom, Patty, was actually her therapist at the time. So after it was obvious that they had created a bond, Patty actually stopped being Maddie's therapist so that they could go to another therapist and start doing attachment work together. And it was a really interesting experience. It was like the most healing experience I've ever had in my life doing attachment work. Again, like I was talking about not being able to really feel like a kid or not being treated like a kid, that created a huge inability in myself to feel like a kid. And so doing attachment work, I remember a lot of it being sitting in my mom, my adoptive mom's lap, um, who's like half my size. And at that time, she was like half my size, you know, making eye contact, just doing things that like connecting with someone as a maternal figure. And, you know, I was like 15 at that point. So I was definitely older, but I was really open to all of this. Like as much as I was angry and aggressive, I wanted a family and I wanted to attach to someone. She wasn't expecting this, you know, when she got into this line of work to take home like one of her foster kids. 
but to have her be open to that experience and then having me be open to that experience. I refer to her as my mom. I refer to her as Patty most of the time. Um, I have like a couple little pet names for her, but it's never been like a thing, you know, like it's been kind of weird for me off and on. I'm like, what do you want me to call you? She's never cared. She is the epitome of like selfless love and what taking in a foster kid should look like or taking in anyone like into your heart and your home. Like she's just a beautiful person. And I tested that relationship to no end. Like (laughs) I probably continue to test it in some ways unconsciously, but up until, you know, like 10 years ago, 18 years ago, I was still like very insecure in our attachment. What it's been now like 18 years, half of my life. And I've known her longer than that. We never formally did an adoption. We did an attachment ceremony. (laughs) Our relationship has never had to look a certain kind of way and just the healing that can come from that without any expectation, regardless of how I was treating her, regardless of how old I was. And I truly, I don't know what my life would look like if I didn't have that one person that stuck it out. Maddie, your attachment relationship with Patty sounds like brought a lot of healing into your life at a very pivotal time, a time where you could still build a foundation for adulthood. Without a space to like, you know, a nest to leave or a home to leave, you don't really have a place to come back to. And a big thing I think like in our relationship too is I lived with my biological mom for the first 11 years of my life and that was total chaos. And then I spent the next seven years, you know, in foster care moving around and that was chaos. I never lived in a family. I lived in like, a, you know, group homes and foster homes with couples and their kids. If you don't grow up in a family, you don't know how to function in a family. And it's hard to function in relationships in general. <laughs> um, and it's hard to understand how to navigate those. That's the key in our relationship <laughs> has been like this selfless unconditional love that she's taught me how to give others and how to function in relationships with that kind of love. It's a different kind of love. Yeah, I just, I truly don't know where I would be without her. So was it, was it you and your foster mom or did she have other kids? Did she have a partner or was it like you two just really attaching? So she does not have kids. It's just me. She wasn't married at the time. We did our attachment work. I was still in foster care. I didn't go to live with her until I legally emancipated. So I turned 18, moved out of my foster home at the time and moved in with her just for a few months before I transitioned up to school here in Durango. And at that time, like, you know, I struggled in school. I went from living in a group home. It wasn't even a foster home. It was a group home to, you know, like having no freedom whatsoever to living on campus and the dorms. I had a great time that first year in school and totally flunked out and then moved back to live with them. And at that, I'm sorry, at that point, she had gotten married to a guy who's, he's my dad. He's amazing. (laughs) We struggled in our relationship at first. It was a different dynamic for sure. You know, and especially with them being like newly married and then me moving in, they had just been married for a year, maybe a little under a year. But regardless, it was a challenging time. But again, it was really like I had my adolescence at that time. You know, I was probably 19, 
just getting to live in an environment where, you know, like we've been talking about, I'm not being judged on my behavior. I'm, you know, like it was, it was just a completely different experience for me. I love too how that story really touches on how the timeline is going to be different with a biological kid. Sometimes they're not ready to leave the home at 18, right? And they've lived like under the roof for 18 years. So how much more so sometimes for a foster kid who like you're saying you were in complete chaos pretty much for the first 18 years of your life. It makes sense that right at 18, like you weren't ready to like launch out into the world. And like you were saying before, like you didn't have that stable place really to launch from at that point. And then also how you were saying too before is, you know, you continually tested that relationship, you know, even into your 20s. And I see that with my foster kid too in my home. Like she totally tests our relationship. I like how in your story too, I really touched on how it was like your foster parents and you against the challenges you were facing instead of you against your foster parents, right? Or you against your challenges alone. It was really the whole family against these challenges. And I think when people look at it that way, it's so much easier too for the foster kids to realize like, hey, this isn't all on me because so many other times in their life, it was all on them. They alone were responsible for their survival. Right. Which creates that, you know, super adult like child who is immature in a lot of ways and super mature in other ways, you know, and it's tricky to navigate that. But again, it goes back to just like, if you're in it for this kid, then you're going to be able to deal with that. Like with my adopted mom, for example, you know, like at that time when I met her, I was like cussing out all my foster parents. I had like a really foul mouth. <laughs> that was where I found a lot of my power. But with her, it felt super uncomfortable to talk like that. And I still would. And it felt weird. And eventually it was just not the way that I spoke to her. And I remember one time when I had moved in with them, I mean, I had been there for probably a year at that point. And we got into this huge fight. We were in the kitchen and I like slammed this cabinet. She got in my face and she like pointed her finger in my face. And I was like, get your bony finger out of my face. And I like kind of whacked her finger. And I was like devastated and felt like I had like assaulted her. <laughs> like we just ended up having this huge repair and it was this beautiful moment. But like, it was such a huge fight. And I just remember thinking like, how small that was compared to like the fights I had gotten into with my foster parents or like fights I had gotten into with the girls I was living with. It was such a like pitiful little fight compared to that, but it felt so powerful to me because of the care and affection I felt for her and her energy kind of calmed my energy enough to be able to feel that way. You know what I mean? Like it was just a very different relationship and it's a different vibe that you have with people when they're, non-judgmental and calm in themselves, you know? I think Maddie's story really does open the window to how volunteers and foster parents have to be so resilient with the time and effort that they put into their relationship with their foster child. You know, Natasha, I especially love the fact that Maddie's mom put in so much time and effort without having any expectations of how Maddie was going to accept what she was getting from the effort that her mother was giving her. And I think that's a great thing for people to be aware of and a great check for that savior complex is if you're giving a lot of effort and getting disappointed because you're expecting certain things in return, it just doesn't really set up a really healthy relationship with the child who has been traumatized. And it's so true that sometimes you're gonna spend years, maybe even, before you're seeing huge headway. 
In fact, Maddie's relationship with her dad didn't have a turning point until years after they had met and Maddie was actually in her 20s. The most powerful moment in our relationship, I think, I was probably 24, 25, and it was Christmas time, and I was up visiting them in Boulder, and my grandparents, my adoptive mom's parents were in town, and so was her aunt. And holidays, you know, have always been like the worst for me. (laughs) It's always been a super emotional time for various reasons, and so there's a lot going on, lots of new family around. I can't remember what happened, but I got into it with my adoptive parents. We got into a fight. I ended up locking myself in the bathroom and I was like wailing, like weeping. It was just such a dramatic moment in time. And then my dad, my adoptive dad comes and he's knocking on the bathroom door. and He's like, are you okay in there? And I was like, you don't understand what it's like for me to not have a family and it's Christmas and you don't know what this is like for me. There's a bench outside of the bathroom door and I hear him out there crying and I was like, what's going on? So I go out there. I had been in the bathroom for like a half an hour locked in there with my own emotions. I come out and he's like, you know, 250, six, four. He's a huge guy. He's sitting on this bench, just bawling. And I sat down next to him and I just put my arm around him. (laughs) And he was like, you don't know what it's like for us to not have kids. You're our kid. You're our family. Um, And that was such a powerful moment in our relationship because I understood at that point, like what I was bringing to this and what it meant for us to be a family. I took that in. That was one of the most meaningful conversations and moments in our relationship and maybe in my whole life. Just seeing like that vulnerability and understanding what it meant for us to be this patchwork family we had put together. Yeah, we all just needed each other. Um, Yeah, and our relationship was just never the same after that. I I love him (laughs) with all my heart. Um, So yeah, I would say that that was like one of the moments that shaped not only just our relationship, but like who I am as a person and how I perceive relationships. It was huge. My adoptive mom, we had had those experiences and those connections. They're just very different people. You know, he's not a social worker. He's a city planner. (laughs) He's not a very emotional person, or I didn't think he was at that point. And so to have that kind of connection with somebody that I had a very strong opinion about. It's not that we disliked each other. I struggled in connecting with him and that broke down every barrier I had. And it turned what I thought would never be a really close relationship into the closest relationship I probably have now. absolutely loved our time with Maddie because I think that we learned so much from her and lots of good highlights. But do you have anything to highlight that you really learned and stuck out to you? What really stuck with me after spending some time with Maddie is that idea of that patchwork family that she brings up. I love how that even though she met her parents, you know, when she was towards the end of her childhood, they were still able to form a really close bond and create a really beautiful family. And she had a lot of pain in her life and went through a lot of tough stuff. 
And that family coming together, I think is really beautiful because it's something that none of them take for granted. She said that even today, they really, really appreciate and love each other. And they've really just never taken that family dynamic that they have and share for granted. If this podcast spoke to you as it did to us, we also do have some additional resources for you. Right. So Maddie actually wrote several articles for foster parents and foster families when she was only 18. And those can be found on our website, justaspecial.com. And they're really great reads. One of them is about how to bond with a foster kid, according to a foster kid, of course. And then another article is about saying goodbye, which is also another really vital thing that often happens in foster care. So how to say goodbye in a good way. Having her master's in social work, Maddie also offers specialized foster trainings for foster families through foster care organizations. So if you're interested in learning more about her trainings, you can go to fosteredconnections.com. So as a bonus for you all for sticking with us until the end, we have another story from a former foster kid. Brittany Kate was adopted in June of 1998 after spending more than a thousand days in foster care. And she's now an adoptive mom and a foster mom. Here's her story in her own words. I'll become a foster parent once my kids are older. I'll become a foster parent once I get married. I'll become a foster parent once we get out of this rental. I'll become a foster parent when... If there's one thing I want you to learn from me, It's this, you don't have to be ready to be a foster parent. In fact, please don't wait until you're ready. I wasn't ready to be removed out of my biological parents' home. I wasn't ready to be touched by four different men. I wasn't ready to be told I couldn't eat dinner until the rest of the family had finished. I wasn't ready to be fed leftovers from the table like a stray puppy. I wasn't ready to wait in visitation rooms day after day for parents who never came back. I wasn't ready. By the time I made it to my last foster home, I was convinced that nobody could love me. I was too ugly, too broken, too used up. My last set of foster parents weren't ready to take a sibling set of three, but they were willing. My social worker dropped my brothers and me off, the perfect package deal, that's what my mom always called us, and a funny thing happened. I was never hungry again. I was never touched in an inappropriate way again. I was never used or abused or neglected again. I was loved, I was cherished, I was wanted. Today, I am an adored wife, a proud mama, a forever daughter. I run an interior design business and I write about foster care on the internet. I have danced with my husband under the Eiffel Tower. I have squeezed a brave birth mama's hand in the delivery room when she gave birth to my foster daughter's sister. I have a life more beautiful than I could have ever imagined. It's full of so much light, so much hope, so much joy, all because two people said yes. You don't have to be ready, you just have to be willing. Your son is dying to meet you. Your daughter is dreaming of you. They need you and you need them. What are you waiting for? You can find Brittany on Instagram at Brittany Kate. That's B-R-I-T-T-A-N-E-Y Kate. She shares a lot of behind the scenes glimpses of her life as an adoptive and a foster mom. And I really encourage you to check her out. 
We also want to encourage you to share this podcast with someone who is interested in the foster care system. And you can find us on Instagram at just as special for an easy way to share this episode and others. So next episode, we're going to be talking with a biracial foster family who are raising kids that are different ethnicities than their own. There was this medicine stick and um, BioDad claimed to be the great shaman. He said that this medicine stick needs to be hung right above Jay's bed. And that's why she's having these terrible dreams. And also to make sure that there's nothing underneath her bed because she's frightened about something underneath there, which there was nothing underneath her bed. So we had a compromise because there was a huge antler sticking out of this medicine stick. And it was very dangerous. It looked like a weapon, honestly, to me. But I want to respect the cultural beliefs that um, BioDead had and little Jay had. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for joining us today. We also want to take the time to thank our guests, Maddie Baker and Brittany Kate. This podcast is produced in Denver, Colorado by House of Pod and is made possible by generous support from Amped. If you have any questions, feedback, concerns, or ideas for future episodes, please email us at hello at justaspecial.com. We look forward to hearing from you.